Welcome to On the Middle East, our monitor's podcast on the big stories of the day. My name is Ambran Zaman, and today we'll be looking at Turkey's escalating campaign against civilian targets in its ongoing war against the outlawed Kurdistan Workers' Party, or the PKK. Turkey's long arm is reaching deep into Iraqi Kurdistan and Syria, where it's killed a range of individuals, politicians, civil society figures, including feminists, on the grounds that they pose a threat to Turkey's national security. With us here to discuss these developments is Megan Burdett, Director for Research for the newly established Washington DC-based Kurdish Peace Institute. Megan has done some remarkable work documenting Turkish abuses in Syria, and she's just published a report on the targeted assassinations of non-combatants. Please forgive my raspy voice, I have a nasty cold. So welcome to our program, Megan. It's great to have you here with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. You just did this really excellent report on Turkey's targeted assassinations of civilians, which it claims are members of the outlawed Kurdistan Workers' Party. It calls these people terrorists and justifies the killings on the grounds that they pose a threat to Turkey's national security. Um, Are these killings justified? No, they're absolutely not. Um, Turkey uses an exceedingly broad definition of terrorism that does not distinguish between combatants and non-combatants, and that does not distinguish between people who are actual members of any particular armed or political group and people who are non-members of those groups. So most people and organizations that have in different capacities been formally accused by the Turkish government of terrorism and particularly of this affiliation with the PKK or with other Kurdish groups are civilian individuals and entities that um, tend to be Kurdish opposition figures, advocates for greater Kurdish political and cultural rights, language rights, uh, political participation, and people who criticize the government's military and national security policies, including military operations against Kurdish groups in Iraq and Syria. So this is not a definition that, like definitions of terrorism in uh, so-called, you know, more democratic countries that is based on the use or threatened use of force. This is a political definition that Turkey is using to claim that non-combatants who might subscribe to political views or engage in political activity that the government of Turkey disagrees with are quote unquote terrorists. So this is very dangerous and it's an exceedingly dangerous standard for um, these targeted killings, these assassinations. Can you tell us about some of these assassinations because they seem to be uh, growing in frequency and in scope. I mean, we see Turkey killing people in Iraq, in Syria. Can you tell us a little bit about the victims? Yeah, so This, from what I've observed, this is a trend that is escalating. Prior to um, 2020, 2021, we'd seen a few cases of these before, but what we're seeing now is victims who are primarily citizens of Syria and Iraq, in Syria and Iraq, not within Turkey, 
though there have been some victims of these alleged uh, attacks that are these alleged Turkish attacks that are citizens of Turkey who are living abroad. Uh, they include both men and women. And one thing that they have in common is that the victims of these killings are all affiliated with political and social institutions that have ties to groups like the Autonomous Administration in Northeast Syria, to social movements that have their roots in the Kurdish political movement in Turkey, and other uh, political institutions, civil society institutions and organizations that, while unarmed, have these social and political links and links to and inspiration from various transnational Kurdish movements. So what we're seeing is, again, non-combatant people who are going about their lives and their political work, not within Turkey, outside of Turkey's borders, peacefully, often very far from Turkey's borders as well, if you look at the locations of some of these strikes, who have been killed in uh, primarily drone strikes. But some of these alleged targeted killings have also taken the form of armed attacks. In the past year, we've specifically seen a disturbing trend of armed attacks against either citizens of Turkey, uh, Kurdish citizens of Turkey, or um, Iraqi Kurds opposed to the Turkish government's policies in Iraqi Kurdistan, in Sulaymaniyya, which is a peaceful city where there are many uh, Kurds from different parts of Kurdistan who take part in political and cultural activity. So this is going on beyond Turkey's borders as these people simply go about their lives and their work with unarmed, political and civil society institutions. So um, why does Turkey find them so threatening? I mean, what's the problem? Well, I think the problem is that right now, after the successes of Kurdish groups, including the Autonomous Administration, the SDF, the YPG, and the PKK as well in the fight against ISIS, the ideas that these groups are putting forward are becoming more legitimate in the region and worldwide. Look, the autonomous administration right now governs one third of Syria, and though there are flaws and challenges in their system, it's established the most successful government in that country based on principles that come from the Kurdish freedom movement, such as uh, rejecting the nation state in favor of uh, coexistence between different ethnic and religious communities, such as women's liberation and women's empowerment at every level. We can look at Iran right now where a people's uprising that's including um, Kurds, Iranians, people of all ethnicities, all class backgrounds, all walks of life have united around a slogan, Jinjian Azadi or woman life freedom that comes from the Kurdish liberation movement. One of the victims of one of these killings, uh, the most recent incident actually was a Kurdish feminist academic, uh, Nagehan Akarsel who worked with uh, the Genealogy Academy. Now, genealogy is sort of the Kurdish movement's is social science of women's liberation that gets into the theories behind these ideas about women's freedom that they've developed, and that explicitly works to share these ideas, not only with Kurdish women, not only with Middle Eastern women, but with women around the world. So you have the increased legitimacy of the political dimension of different elements of the Kurdish freedom movement, as well as increased legitimacy for the broader Kurdish cause and a delegitimization of all out Turkish military action against Kurdish regions. We saw the entire world react in horror when Turkey invaded Northeast Syria in 2019. So there's a perception that these full military attacks almost hurt Turkey's cause and its goals more than they help it. 
But these targeted killings go under the radar. The Western media doesn't often cover it. It's not as outrageous as a full military invasion and occupation. So not only do they target the people who are spreading the political dimension of the movement's ideas, of Kurdish civil society's ideas, but they also do so in a way that does not generate international outrage. And for Turkey, that's very valuable. Yet we just heard Turkey's ambassador in Baghdad sort of admit that Turkey was responsible for um, Nagihan Akarsel's death, right? Uh, she's actually someone I met during my travels in Iraqi Kurdistan. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was quite interesting, wasn't he, that he actually said it? Yes, absolutely. Uh, to me, that reflects that the government of Turkey believes that they have uh, impunity for this policy. Now, that impunity is not new. That's something we could get into later. But by admitting that um, anyone affiliated in Turkey's definition with the PKK, so to speak, is a target for Turkey, which is what the ambassador said, responding to a question about this killing, that is an admission that targeted killings of non-combatants based on their real or perceived political beliefs and political actions are a part of Turkish strategy right now against not only the PKK, but against uh, the autonomous administration and against Kurdish civil society in uh, different capacities. But as you said, um, a lot of this goes under the radar. Uh with so much attention now focused on Ukraine in particular, the media is not really looking very much at what's happening mm. inside Syria. And at the same time, of course, uh, you said impunity. Well, yes, Turkey can act with impunity because there's really uh, no sanction for its actions. You said that, yeah, and you're right, there was a huge outcry when Turkey invaded um, northeast Syria in 2019. Uh and it's wanted to do so again, but basically not been permitted to by the Russians and the Americans aren't agreeing either. And so it seems to now be resorting um, as a plan B to these targeted assassinations. You hear a lot of tut-tutting, but uh, that's it, right? How do, how do you stop this? Well, I think that I'm glad that you brought up Ukraine there because it's easy to overlook this as there are these other conflicts going on, but all of these issues are connected. Instability in the Middle East while countries are trying to focus on other issues globally is a problem because eventually instability always boils over. And when you're dealing with a conflict like the one in Ukraine where the West is trying to make the case that Russia's actions violate every basic principle of a rules-based international order, tolerating a NATO ally uh, carrying out extrajudicial killings of non-combatants on the territory of other sovereign countries is itself an affront to the international order. That weakens these norms that countries are trying to defend in Ukraine and gives bad actors like Russia an excuse. So we have to look at these ideas about international norms and about regional security, respect for the sovereignties of other countries as connected. And there are a lot of options in that sort of framework of focusing on international norms, peace and conflict resolution for the United States. I would say the first thing would be an immediate end to the export of technology and um, arms that are used in these cross-border military operations, particularly drone technology. I would say condemning Turkey, making it very clear that these are destabilizing attacks that are contrary to international norms, 
that Turkey will no longer have impunity for, that they will be held accountable for, and that these violations will be brought to light. And I think in the long term, there needs to be a serious effort to de-escalate on the Kurdish issue. I think some of the best ways uh, for countries like the US to get involved in that involve uh, simply no longer assisting Turkey in its efforts to pursue military solutions to the Kurdish question. Um, again, with restricting arms sales, technology, intelligence cooperation, there are many ways that the US can take its finger off the scale here and promoting uh, peace and de-escalation instead. We've seen some positive rhetoric from the Biden administration on that, but we really haven't seen action. And if these targeted killings continue because of the outrage they cause in Kurdish society, they could lead to escalation in Iraq or Syria, which would be destabilizing at a time when uh, that's not in the interest of really any actor involved. My impression is that the Biden administration is not very interested in Syria at all. Mm -hmm. I would agree. I think they are sticking with the status quo. And um, while commendably they have prevented a Turkish invasion, uh, that's the floor. That's not the ceiling. So going forward, what do you think will happen, given that we have elections in Turkey and if it seems to be in Erdogan's interests to, you know, play up the nationalist threat do you see uh, any risk of actually uh, there being another Turkish invasion? I think that there's always a risk. That's a risk that's not going to go away until there is some kind of negotiated solution to the Kurdish question within Turkey. But I do think that uh, the potential international diplomatic and economic costs of an invasion, if there were to be a similar international reaction to that that occurred in 2019 might right now um, be enough cause for Erdogan and his government to think twice. But I do think we can't look at an invasion as the only form of destabilizing Turkish action against Northeast Syria, because these targeted killings taking out uh, particularly political leaders in Northeast Syria as well as in a slightly different phenomenon, uh, similar targeted assassinations of SDF military leaders, these destabilize the autonomous administration. Economic and environmental pressure by Turkey on the region destabilizes the autonomous administration. And if, um, if people are facing this constant threat of random violent attacks, if the economy is unstable, if the security situation is unstable, then that's a problem for any government. And if these trends continue, that harms the goals of the counter ISIS and stabilization campaigns in Northeast Syria without Turkey having to move any more troops across the border. So this sort of low intensity war um, may very well continue, may very well escalate, and it's going to likely escalate to a point where the Biden administration will wish that it had been more proactive in addressing uh, forms of Turkish intervention against the autonomous administration and against Kurdish groups transnationally that are short of a full military occupation of more Syrian territory. Well, Megan, thank you very much for your time. Uh, fascinating discussion, and we hope to read more from you on this subject. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I truly appreciate your time. Hi, I'm 
I'm Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department correspondent at El Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell. I'm El Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let El Monitor help you. If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to El Monitor's audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amber and Zaman, and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our newest video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts, along with first-class reporting and analysis. And this brings us to the end of this week's On the Middle East. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Megan as much as I did. Do tune in next week for another episode that will hopefully be just as riveting. Thank you and goodbye.